have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Ephesians 1. We're kind of going to be looking at several passages over and over in this lesson as we look at the ascension. And uh, let's pull up our ascension questions. Uh, we've been asking these questions, and basically, if you've been with us in the previous weeks, you should be able to answer all of these questions. Where did Jesus go in the ascension when he went up? Back home to glory. What did Jesus do in his glorification? He sat down as the sovereign king. What did Jesus do after he sat down? He sent the Holy Spirit as promised by the Father. How did he send the Spirit? Well, he sent the Spirit as a high priest who asks of the Father on our behalf, who intervenes for what we need, that's mercy, and then some, that's grace. Well, here's our question for this morning. What is Jesus' earthly focus in all of this? What He's up there, His church is down here. Well, what's, what's He focusing on? He is leading His church as the head overall. So that's what we want to see that he is doing. He is leading his church. And so if you look at that chart on your notes, we're moving through what is his ascension? It begins with his glorification, but it involves his session, sitting at the right hand, the procession, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit, his intercession as a royal priest, and now his direction as the head of the church. We've seen him as the God-man, the king, the prophet, the priest, and now we're going to see him as head overall. I bet you didn't know that all of this was in the ascension. Okay, he went up. You know, and half the time we don't even talk about the ascension. We just think of resurrection. And if we think of him going up, we rush to him coming back down for us at the end of the age. But no, all of this is involved in the ascension. So let's look there in your notes. The ascended Jesus is the head over his church. He is the head over his church. And when did all this commence? You're going to see overlapping of all this. We, we've talked about the sending of the Spirit. Well, guess what? When he sent the Spirit, that's the birth of the church. And so on the day of Pentecost, the ascended, seated, intervening Jesus sent his Spirit to birth his church. So I think I lied to you. I have you in Ephesians 1, Acts chapter 2. Sorry about that. Turn to Acts chapter 2. I know it's a bummer having to move around in your Bible. Uh, said sarcastically, but uh, Acts chapter 2. Sorry, I try to always start you out in the right place. Acts chapter 2, and that's, that's for myself as well. So Acts chapter 2, and let's look at verses 32 through 47, because here's what we know, um, that he, this same Jesus, he talks about, Peter is talking about the preaching He's preaching about the ascension of Jesus. And so in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, there's the ascension, to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He has poured forth this which you have seen and, and hear. For it was... Not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself. And last week we talked about Psalm 110. He quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All these themes we have studied are summarized in those few verses. Look at the reaction of the gathered Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's the right response. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? We have really royally messed up. What hope is there for us? And Peter said, Repent. 
Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Identify with him for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. The Spirit had come upon the initial disciples. And now 3,000 people are going to respond and accept Christ. And notice It says, verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who received his word were baptized, and that day there was added about 3,000 souls. So you have the coming of the Spirit the preaching of the gospel, the response to that, and now the church is birthed. It's birthed through the coming of the Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, and you read on down through verse uh, 47, you see that day by day, they were continuing with one mind. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were having fellowship praising God and having favor. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Three things I want you to see just at this initial day of Pentecost. The first thing I want you to see is the birth of the church. The birth of the church. Israel and the church, they're both the people of God. There's a continuity in that, but there's a discontinuity. For the first time, a church... The church has been born with each individual member having the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the ascended Christ made that possible. Second thing I want you to see is our union with Christ, who is the head of the church. This this ascended Christ and his people down on earth have this spiritual Holy Spirit union. There's this union that we are one with the ascended. We've studied this, where even when we get saved, we are ascended and seated with him in the heavenlies. How can that be? He's up here, we're down here. It's the Holy Spirit. It's that union with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, is this even in Acts? Yeah, look over at Acts chapter 9, verse 4. This unique union... Jesus, the ascended Jesus, made clear to Saul, the persecutor. Look in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Saul, who would become Paul, is persecuting the church. But look at what happens. On the road to Damascus, verse 4, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The point is, when you kill men and women and children who are believers in Christ, you're attacking me. Because we have this unique union. It's a beautiful connection that Jesus is making clear to Saul, his persecutor. And so that's why in the Bible... We're going to see in the many passages or the several passages that we're going to look at, we're going to see head and body. They're one through the Spirit. We're going to see bridegroom and bride. They're one in the Spirit. In fact, there's so many beautiful word pictures of this union with Christ. The vine and the branches, vital union, okay? The temple and the living stones, vital union. The shepherd and his flock of vital union. And so that's what we're looking at here. And one of those vital unions is the third point I want you to see. His headship. His headship over all things is another aspect of that vital union that we have with Christ. He is head over all things as the glorified God-man. We've talked about that. The prophet we talked about that, the priest, the king, and his headship as all those things is for sacrificially loving and leading his church. So now go to Ephesians 1. I want you to see this in your Bibles, Ephesians 1. And this is kind of our 
introductory passage to this whole concept of headship. So look at Ephesians 1 and in verse 18. Ephesians 1 verse 18. I find it interesting that if you would ask Paul, Paul, what do you pray for believers? Here's one of his prayers. And it's about the ascension. It's about the headship of Christ. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You'll never understand what we're teaching in this series without the help of the Holy Spirit. So if you're, if you're going through this and it's like, yeah, this is breaking my brain. Yeah, no kidding. It takes spiritual enlightenment of the Holy Spirit through His Word. And it takes prayer. So that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? What is that power like? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He did what? When He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at the right hand in the heavenlies. There it is, ascension, right there. The session, all of it, it's there. And then He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, if you're above every authority, every power, and every kingdom or dominion in the earth, what does that mean about your authority? If you're above all that, what kind of authority do you have? You've got all of it. You've got all of it. That is all yours. And that is all Christ. And every name that is named. You can't name a name that has greater power and authority than the risen, ascended Christ. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. I mean, think about it. He's above everything. And he's above everything in this age. And you say, well, what about the future? No, the age to come. He's above all that. And then notice verse 22, not only is he overall, he put all things in subjection under his feet. So he's overall, everything is under him. You've got authority over, submission under, and then boom, he explains what he's been talking about. And he gave him as head over all things. Now, we're going to look at a definition of what headship is in a moment, but I'm showing you right there in Scripture, headship in, involves authority over and submission under. But notice what that headship is for. He gave him as head over all things to whom? To the church. Some of you have for the church. Some of you to the church. The point is Jesus is head over over everything for the benefit of us as his church. Here in Pakistan, in Greece, it doesn't matter where. He is head over all of things for the benefit of his church. Now, that's kind of cool. Notice what it says, which is his body. There's that union, that bond, the fullness of him who fills all in all as head Christ is going to complete everything in creation. And that one who completes everything completes the church. He is everything we need. Now, that's the idea of headship. So let's take a look at this. We're going to take, again, our tiny little thimble, dip it into the ocean of Christ's headship, and give you an overview. Let's begin with the definition. The definition, his definition of headship. The reason I start with definition is some of you may not be aware of this. Several of you, many of you are that there's a real controversy over the meaning of headship in our culture, especially with the rise of fem feminism in in the West in the 70s. So there's a lot of controversy and there are those who want to remove authority from the concept of headship. Because if you can remove authority, then there's no more submission. And then there's just not that uncomfortable idea of us submitting to anybody. 
And so there's controversy over this, and that's why I said we want to look at his definition. Because guess what? I don't get to define it. You don't get to define it. The culture doesn't get to define it. People with PhDs don't get to define it. The Bible. And I think I've already given you sufficient right there to say there's authority over, there's submission under, concept of headship. But let me give you some definitions here. And I think I will be able to defend those as we read these passages for the rest of the lesson. But let's begin here. Here's the simplest right here. Head represents the authority to lead others. Head represents the authority to lead others. That's as simple as I can make it. And you do it for God's glory and for the good of others. And, and I add that on there because it's important. Because in our culture, bold, naked authority... Well, first of all, not even in our culture. Bold, naked authority is a scary thing. All right, When someone has absolute power and you're not that person, that's an intimidating thing. But that's not the kind of authority we're looking at in the Bible. It's always authority for God's glory and for the good of the people that that authority is exercised for. Uh, you're right there in Ephesians 1. I'm not going to read that passage again, but look at verse 22. I do want you to see one thing. Well, verse 21, he says, Far above, authority over, he put all things under, submission under. But here's what I want you to see. Look at those next words. And he gave him as head. Circle that word gave in your Bibles. He gave him as head. Here's what I want you to get. If you don't get anything else, leave this lesson. Headship is a gift to be received with joyfulness and thankfulness. Headship is a gift from God. It's something to be received with thankfulness, not to be rejected as burdensome and as enslaving. That's not the concept. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Another key passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, is another key passage for understanding Christ's headship and for defining it, okay? So look at Colossians 1, let's begin in verse 15. Verse 15, Colossians 1, verse 15. Notice what it says, speaking of Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God. I would write in my Bible, God-man. He is the perfect representation of God as a human being. He is the incarnate God-man. Then notice, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, to understand that, that doesn't mean he, it doesn't say first made. He wasn't a part of creation. He's the firstborn of over creation. And in the Bible, the firstborn had the right of ruling and representing and the double blessing. What he's saying there is, you could simply understand that as, he's the ruler over all creation. Well, why does he get to be sovereign over creation? Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, invisible and visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's sovereign over all authority because he's the source of all authority. Let's keep going. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. He's not the creature. He's not the first created being. He is the creator. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. So think about what we're seeing. He's sovereign because he's the source and the sustainer of everything. That's our God. That's Christ. Then notice, and he is also, boom, head of the body, the church. Well, what gives him the right to be that? He is the beginning 
He is the beginning of the church. He is the beginning of the new creation. Notice, he's not only the firstborn of creation, he's the firstborn from the dead. Meaning, he is sovereign, he's the ruler over death. Why? Because he's the only one who has conquered death. So I want you to see that in this passage, authority, headship, ruling, is all there. Yes, he's the source of authority, but that means he's sovereign over authority. And he sustains all things. And therefore, notice how he ends this, so that he himself will come to have what? What's it say in your text? First place in what? In everything. Second to none. Sovereign, source, Sustainer, second to none. There's your idea of headship. He is head over all. He has the authority to lead over all things. Now, let's bring that down. Here's another definition. Let's let's apply it in the sense of the church. Notice in your notes, it says, As the head, this authorized representative sacrificially leads out of love. I said earlier, naked, absolute authority is fearful. But when you have absolute authority that sacrifices to lead others, I'm not going to force you. I'm going to deny myself. And I'm going to do it out of love. And I'm going to do it to protect you. I'm going to do it to provide for you. I'm going to do it to promote your growth and your human flourishing. And I'm going to partner with you. I'm going to use my authority to partner with you to fulfill God's purposes on earth. That's what the headship of Christ is all about. Is that not cool? Now listen, you see in that, this is what a husband is supposed to do, guys. They're supposed to protect, provide, promote, and partner with their wives to fulfill God's purposes. So headship is not about dominating. It's not about abusing. It's not about being the boss. It's not about being large and in charge. It's about being a sacrificial leader who loves those he leads in order to protect, provide, promote. And fathers and mothers... This is what you are to do with your authority over your children. Not to put your thumb on them, but to protect them from this world's filthiness. To provide for them that which they need to grow in Christ. To promote their discipleship and to partner with them as a family. We're going to church to not only worship God, but to fulfill His purposes. So that we can move into our neighbor neighborhood and do the same. Man, there's just a well. Is, is it beautiful? It's beautiful stuff. There you go. Now we can read those passages. We're going to keep moving. One more. Headship and submission are God's creation design. They are God's creation and design for men and women to complement and complete one another in fulfilling God's purposes. Here, and, and I've got a lot of verses for you. You know, I don't know what you do with these notes. You know, in my fantasy world, you take them home and you pray over them, you look over them. You know, I know in reality, many find their way to that trash can on your way out. I see that during the week, I know. But, you know, let me have my fantasy, okay? So you take this home and you study this, right? And you look at this. And you see this, and you saturate your heart and mind in it. But here's what I want you to see, is this headship didn't just start on the day of Pentecost. This is God's creation designed from the beginning. That God would rule over mankind, made in His image. And man and woman would complement and complete. And the man would be the head, and the woman would be the helper. You see all that in Genesis 2. Adam is the head, Eve is the helper. Together they complement and complete. You can't have children without one or the other. 
in spite of what our culture is trying to distort and rebel against? Listen, listen. We have to have one another. Okay? Every man here came from forth from a woman. Yeah, okay. And, and, and it, you, got, you, you want me to explain that a little more? No, we can go on. Okay. Paul says this. I'm just telling you, Paul, right here. Paul says this. Every man here came from a woman. Don't you dare think you don't need women. Your, your whole life and being was dependent on that woman who gave birth to you, whether you know who she is or not. And every woman was made out of man in Genesis 2. Women would not be here unless man had sacrificed Adam, his rib, in his sleep. We need each other. And that's God's creation design. So headship is rooted all the way back in creation. So that's my best stab. Now, let's look at, that's the definition, his definition of headship. Let's look at his ascension as head. So when he ascends, there's four ways that Christ is head overall. And we're going to move through these quickly. But I just want you to see that this headship is it's vast, okay? Number 1, Jesus is the scorned head over Israel. He is the scorned head. Now this is interesting. How many of you ever heard that Jesus is the chief cornerstone? How many of you knew that the Greek word for chief is the same Greek word for head? In other words, Jesus is the head cornerstone of Israel. It was predicted. I have the passage right there in uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. He is the head cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. But what did the builders, the leaders of Israel do with the cornerstone? They rejected it. They said, ah, this measly little rock, this little servant human being who is not impressive. They tossed him aside. They stumbled over that rock. And yet God took that rock and made it what? The chief cornerstone, the headstone. And so the irony is Jesus is the head of Israel. And yet Israel has not done what with the head? They have not submitted to the head. And therefore, they are missing out of the blessings of Christ as their head. There's so much more here. Secondly, Jesus is the sovereign head over everything. Here's the irony. What the Jewish people scorned became the sovereign head over Jew and Gentile. Okay? He became the head over everything. This is why Jesus could say, right before he ascended, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. I am the sovereign head. Okay. This is why in Philippians, he was humiliated and yet he was exalted and given a name over every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow every tongue confess. Why? He's the sovereign over everything. Now, here's the beauty of it. The Jewish Messiah was rejected and has now become the Savior of all Gentiles. If they will but call unto him, submit to him by faith and be saved. Third, Jesus is the sacrificial head over all of humanity. So he's the head over the universe, but he's the sacrificial head over humanity. What, what do I mean by this? Well, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. What do we see here? Romans 5, where the first Adam, so Adam, in Romans 5, you don't find the word head. But you find this idea of the authority who represents all of humanity. So Adam made a choice and it impacted all of humanity. He was the head of humanity. And what he did affected all of humanity. Well, guess what? Jesus comes 
as the second Adam, the last Adam, and he is victorious where Adam failed, and now he's the head of a new humanity, all right? And all of that is in Romans 5. Look at verse 8 or 17. Look at verse 17. For by the transgression of the one, and by the way, even in that we see headship, because who was deceived first? Eve. But whose sin cast all of humanity into the curse of sin? It was Adam, because there's a headship there. And and sadly, they cooperated with one another to rebel against God instead of cooperating to submit to God. And so when he says the one, it's, he's not referring to Eve. He's referring to Adam. Death reigned through the one, Adam. Much more are those who receive abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ, the new Adam. So then, As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous by faith in him as our sacrificial head. Isn't that beautiful? So when you're born, so here's the thing. Everybody, a lot of even Christians are rebelling against headship because we're in a, a deep-seated cultural rebellion against authority, right? And, and when did that start? In the garden. Okay, it started in the garden. Okay, didn't start with feminism. It didn't start with this culture, that culture started there, but it's increasing. There's no doubt about that. So that rebellion is increasing. But here's the thing. You can deny it all you want. But when you're born, you're either under the headship of Adam or you're under the headship of the last Adam. So you're either under the headship of the curse of Adam or you're under the headship of the salvation of Christ by faith in Him. So you're under a head, no matter what. Do you want to be under a fallen, selfish, rebellious head? Or do you want to be under a sacrificial Savior that laid down His life? Isn't that beautiful? Okay, keep going. Fourth, there's a fourth aspect of His headship. Jesus is the shepherding head over his church. He is the shepherding head over his church. Jesus is the savior of the world, but not everybody accepts him as savior. That's a key point I just made. He's the savior of the world. He's the head over the new humanity. But if you don't accept him... You aren't saved by him, and you are left to his judgment as head. But here's the beauty. If you accept him, he becomes your shepherd, your leader, your lover, your savior. And he guides and directs. And here's the thing. It's not just us individually. He's shepherding a universal church that involves Greece and Pakistan. That's why we ought to, you know, I felt bad that I didn't hear about those immigrants, right? I kind of saw something, someone making a meme. We need to be involved in the world in positive news so that we can realize Jesus is shepherding his universal church, but he's also shepherding this local church. This local church. He is the head, not Bruce or Chris, not the leadership team. The head of this church is this one. And we may feel small or little or insignificant or overlooked, not just as individuals, but as a church, and realize, no, no, no. Our head, our head is shepherding us. Isn't that good? We need to hear this. 
And we need to hear it more. We need to hear this. So I just gave you four aspects of that. Now to the real lesson. Number three. But, hey, now I, you know, I know you guys laugh at me. I realize that. But, again, I have a fantasy world where I live where I think, oh, this is giving them a biblical big picture. Because you know what? I can dive into this. But I'm telling you what, what I'm about to tell you at lightning speed, it's, it's, not, it's meaningless if you don't understand this big picture. If you don't understand the definition of headship, if you don't understand how his ascension makes him the head of Israel, the universe, humanity, and yes, even his church. So let's look. What does Jesus do? Let's look at his direction in his headship. How, how does he leverage his leadership for the church? As our head, we're going to see he does four things. The first is the preparation of the church as his bride. The preparation of his church. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Four ways. The preparation of his church as his bride. You know what? I find it interesting that in Ephesians 5, look at verse 25. Really, 25 through 27 really sums it up. Here is this all-powerful, all-authority ruling head. And you know what his number one concern is in exercising his authority? It's purifying the church. It's preparing the church to be his bride. He's holy, so what kind of bride does he want? A holy one. Because that's the only kind of bride he can have intimacy with. He is holy, so he wants his bride to be holy. So look at 525. And I want you to not so much look at the husband and wife aspect of it. I want you to look at the comparison to Christ and his church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the sacrificial leadership. Why? So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Right now, Christ's head is washing you with his word. He's cleansing you. We come to church to get a spiritual bath with the word of God. That's why you don't go to a church that doesn't preach the word. Because you go in dirty and you come out dirty. At a church like ours, and we're not the only one, But a church like ours, you should come in, and we come in with dirt from the week. And the washing of this word should be cleansing us, sanctifying us. Why? Verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. Uh, You know, we just went to uh, Grace's wedding down there in Arkansas, and just sitting there, melting in the heat, I was reflecting on how every wedding is a wonderful, ideal picture. There she came, and there the head of that marriage was waiting for her at the end of the sweaty outdoor aisle she was walking. But despite that, she didn't know it was sweating. She was glistening, and she was just beautiful. And everyone has their dress, and, and, and it's spotless, and you come. And you know what the good news is? No bride and no groom are sinless, but our head is. And he can forgive and cleanse us, and we can come. It's a, it's a picture. It's a beautiful picture. And in Revelation 19, here's what happens at the second coming when the bridegroom comes. Revelation 19 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. 
It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So Christ is cleansing us. We are preparing, and together we are going to be a pure bride presented to our bridegroom. Isn't it? That's what he's doing. He's preparing. He's sanctifying his bride. Number two, the distribution of gifts to the church. As head, he is distributing gifts. Turn to Ephesians 4. We're right there. We've been in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4. Look at verse 7. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, each believer, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We have been given grace gifts. Then, guess what? He launches into the ascension. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, what's the idea there? The idea is when a conqueror would go forth and was victorious in battle, they would come back from battle, leading their captives captive and bringing the plunder. To the victor belongs the spoils. And Christ has descended down to the depths of even death, and he is victorious and has risen and ascended, and he has plunder. He's going to share the booty with his people. He's got the plunder. I know, every time you say that word, you laugh. I'm sorry, it's funny. But that's the idea. He's got gifts to give. And then notice what else it says. He who ascended is himself. Who, uh, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. There's the headship. Above all things. And notice, he not only gave each believer gifts, but look at verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers. Now here we know he's not talking about every believer because he then says, for the equipping of the saints. So every believer gets gifts from the ascended Lord, but there are the gifts of qualified men. Apostles and prophets who laid the foundation of the church. Evangelists that equipped the church for evangelism. And then pastor teachers who stay in a local area discipling and equipping the saints so that you do the work of the ministry with the gifts you've been given. Isn't that cool? And so there's the chief shepherd has given under shepherds. The head of the church has given elders and pastors to be the head of his church under him. So that's the distribution, all right? There's, there's more here, but number three, why is all this done? Number three, the edification of the church. Why does Christ distribute gifts so that we will be built up? Look at verse 13. It keeps going. How long do we build up one another with our gifts? How long do pastor, pastors and teachers lead and equip the church? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We keep growing until we are fully like Him. Anybody arrived at that yet? Keep growing. Has our church arrived at that yet? No. Keep serving. Keep serving. Keep using your gifts. As a result, we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects, even to him who is the what? What's it say in that verse? 15. Who is the, the head? The head. So 
We're to be built up to become like our head. And then finally, man, there's just so much. Let me just say this. The only way you're going to grow up in him is to stay connected to him. That spiritual bond I started this lesson with, that spiritual union, seek it. Nothing can break it. It's the spirit dwelling in you. But it's as you seek to be like him and to to draw strength from him through his word, through the preaching and teaching of his word, through the fellowship of one another. I always get concerned during the summer because we take a break from our small groups from which our host families and all of us say, hallelujah, nice to have a break, right? But you know what? I always get concerned because we get a little disconnected during the summer. We get a little disconnected and we have a tendency to almost take a spiritual vacation from building one another in Christ. Okay, fourth, the cooperation of the church as his household. The cooperation of the church as his household. I said that this headship idea began in Genesis and it's restored in Christ in his church. But it's also to play out in marriage, but also in ministry. It's to play out in the home, and it's to play out in the church. So notice what you have here, the next, the headship in the master's household. In the household of marriage, Christ is the model for husband and wife. Men, if you're a husband here, you're the head, but you're to be a head like Christ, okay? No domination, no selfishness, sacrificial leadership. Wives, if you're a wife here, your submission to your husband's headship is to be as unto the Lord. If he's telling you to sin, you say, go jump in a lake. But say it reverently, okay? Respectfully. I'm kidding. But seriously, we, we get this idea of this distortion that, well, okay, uh, headship, he gets to say anything he wants. And submission means I have to do whatever he's... No, 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 no. It's all unto the Lord. You lead like the Lord and you submit to whatever the Lord would say to submit to, not whatever another human, even if it's your husband. But notice also in the household of ministry, did you know... That in 1 Timothy 3, the church is called the household of God. And just as there's headship in the home, there's headship in the church. And so in the household of ministry, Christ is the master of his household. And so in 1 Timothy, he says these words. I, did I, I don't know if I put it. They're in your notes. I know they're in your notes. Um, Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you. These things are the entire letter. Hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so you may know how to conduct himself, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then he says, you, you should ask, what are these things? Well, especially what he just wrote. The priority of prayer. He says in 1 Timothy 2, pray for all those in authority so that immigrant boats don't get topsides, so coups don't take place. Pray for order so the gospel can be promoted. But hey, church, that order, that headship should be manifested in your worship. And he talks about how men and women in a binary, male-female way, are to manifest God's holiness as male and female in the church. And then he goes on to say that women are not to function as pastors in the church. Real controversy right now and ongoing. And that doesn't mean any old man or any man 
gets to lead the church, there's the necessity of character qualifications. Godly men. Godly men. Not perfect. Not little gods, but godly. And not perfect, but above reproach. Make sense? That's, a, that's the headship. That's the headship. I mean, I'm giving you the broad thing on this. Because you, you want to know that when you, it's, it's like Jenga, right? When you take the wrong piece out of the Jenga tower, what happens? Falls over. Listen, folks, you take headship out of the Bible, you take headship out, and you've dethroned Christ. But it's not going to work that way because <laughs> he's still thrown because he's head. But when you play around with headship and remove that, you affect Christ. You're impacting your view of Christ. You're impacting your view of the church. And you're impacting your view of the most central aspect to flourishing of humanity. And that's the marriage and the home. So whether you're single or married here, you have a head. And you have a part to play in this church. And he will give you the strength. He, will, he is the source of your spiritual vitality. He will grow you. Amen? All right. Man, we made it by the grace of God. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I know this is a lot, but it's just good to get the big picture. And I pray, Lord, that we will contemplate these things and rest in your headship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.